The most merciful thing in the world, I think, is the inability of the human mind to correlate all its contents. We live on a placid island of ignorance, in the midst of black seas of infinity, and it was not meant that we should voyage far. The sciences, each straining in its own direction, have hitherto harmed us little, but someday, the piecing together of dissociated knowledge will open up such terrifying vistas of reality and our frightful position therein that we shall either go mad from the revelation or flee from the deadly light into the peace and safety of a new dark age. These are the words of American horror author H.P. Lovecraft from a fictional piece of writing about a monstrous mythological sea creature named Cthulhu. In his short story, The Call of Cthulhu, this terrifying creature lies hidden, slumbering at the bottom of the ocean, ready to wake up and wreak havoc on an unsuspecting populace. Lovecraft's horror fantasy stories seem to evoke a sense of existential dread in his readers. And yet, lurking within the dark corners of our own galaxy, there are hidden cosmic leviathans, every bit as baffling and terrifying as any of Lovecraft's monsters. These monsters in outer space are capable of devouring not just planets, but entire stars. Lovecraft's unsettling words almost seem like a fitting description for these dark behemoths. Physicists and astronomers call them black holes. And aside from their horrific destructive potential, these strange monsters in outer space pose bold, challenging, profound, and paradoxical questions about the very fabric of the universe itself. But we likely never would have understood them at all if not for the work of an obscure, daydreaming, European patent clerk named Albert Einstein. Welcome to Universe University. I'm your host, Chris Grant, and today we invite you to go on a journey with us through history, through the fabric of space and time itself, and to dare to stare into a window to oblivion and explore the mysteries of black holes. In the 1600s, the Western world saw a scientific revolution that transformed the way ordinary people saw their world and their universe. Large wooden sailing ships crossed vast distances of ocean in search of imperial naval supremacy and better trade routes. Yet navigating those vast distances proved to be a risky proposition. A disease called scurvy, tropical storms, rogue waves, and even sea serpents were all considered legitimate threats. The voyages were most challenging because commanders struggled to determine precisely where they were at any given time. Maps and charts divided up the known world by latitude and longitude. Latitude lines ran horizontally. Longitude lines ran vertically. Latitude could be inferred from the position of the sun at solar noon. A tool called a sextant also helped. But determining longitude on the open ocean proved more difficult. An accurate clock could be used on the voyage, but as ships pitched over and rocked back and forth, ticking clocks quickly lost their accuracy. Some astronomers believed that the predictable motions of the heavens, in particular, certain astronomical events, might be the most precise way to measure time. Copernicus and Galileo revealed to us that planets, including the Earth, are in orbit around the Sun. An astronomer and mathematician named Kepler helped to establish the motions of the planets and their orbits. The Galilean moons, the four largest moons of Jupiter, 
could clearly be seen through telescopes at the time, and their motions seemed as dependable as any clock. Jupiter's moon, Io, seemed to orbit closest to the planet, so it would make an ideal target for observation. On cloudless nights out at sea, even the most crude telescopes of the day could clearly see Io as it was eclipsed by the enormous shadow of the planet Jupiter. And sure enough, it would emerge from behind the planet sometime afterwards. An Italian astronomer, Giovanni Cassini, the head of the Paris Observatory, tasked a young Danish assistant named Rolmer with the job of compiling accurate tables to predict precisely when Io would be eclipsed by Jupiter. Rolmer was young, but quite intelligent. Yet immediately, there were problems in Rolmer's work. None of the Io eclipse predictions made in the tables seemed to ever be correct. Staring through a telescope, an observer on Earth had to be seeing the moon Io at the precise moment it passed behind Jupiter's shadow, and the precise moment it emerged around the other side of the planet. Yet predictions of when the eclipse of Io would take place were typically off by several minutes. Why, though? Was there something odd or irregular about the orbit of Io? It was interesting to note that the largest discrepancies for when the predicted eclipse of Io would occur happened when Jupiter and its moons were further away from the Earth. Romer's precocious intellect then made a stunning deduction. Many brilliant minds at the time believed that the speed of light was instantaneous. Striking a match in a dark room, the light from the flame seemed to reach the observer's eyes instantly. So the sight of astronomical events, even those that were very far away, should be perceived instantaneously by observers here on Earth. But what if the speed of light wasn't instantaneous? Sound waves didn't travel through air instantaneously. If an observer witnessed a flash of lightning on Earth off in the distance, the thunder followed shortly thereafter. But the light came first. So the speed of light was certainly faster than the speed of sound. But how fast was light exactly? The light reflected by Jupiter's moons might be taking several minutes to cross the gulf of space between Jupiter and Earth. And that would account for the discrepancy in the eclipse tables. What if astronomers weren't looking at the present, but into the recent past? This was an astounding revelation, but even Romer struggled to come up with a precise figure for how fast light was moving. He estimated that it took about 11 minutes for light to travel from the sun all the way to the earth. His figure was off, but not by much. In reality, it takes eight minutes for light to travel from the sun to the earth. In the 1700s, astronomer and priest James Bradley came up with a far closer estimate for the speed of light. It was almost perfect. Today, modern astronomers know that the speed of light is a little over 186,000 miles per second, or nearly 300,000 kilometers per second, more than 600 million miles per hour. This speed is a universal constant. The planets are relatively close, but we measure trillions of miles distance between us and the nearest stars in the night sky, in light years. This is the distance it takes light from distant stars, or any light for that matter, to travel in a single year. When we look at a star a thousand light years away, we are seeing that star as it looked a thousand years ago. The late astronomer Carl Sagan said, quote, Space and time are intertwined. You cannot look out into space without looking back into time. In the 1780s, an English clergyman 
an amateur scientist named John Mitchell had some interesting theories about the natural world. While he became a professor of geology and made conjectures about the possible causes of earthquakes, he also had a fascination with astronomy. He supposed, quite correctly, that binary stars might be distant stars orbiting around each other. He also speculated about a strange sort of theoretical star in outer space, which he called a dark star. Sir Isaac Newton revolutionized modern science when he showed that massive objects exerted an invisible force on the objects around them. Gravity. It was the same force that caused an apple to fall to the earth from an apple tree. Galileo showed that the earth and all the planets in the solar system were orbiting around the sun, held in place by the invisible force of gravity. Mitchell wondered if there were larger, even more massive stars, if they could exert a force of gravity so powerful that not even light could escape from them. Astronomers on Earth wouldn't be able to see dark stars through their telescopes. But if there were another regular star in a binary star system orbiting around that dark star, its presence could be deduced. Such dark stars were not detected in Mitchell's lifetime, and his theoretical dark star is by no means the same as what we today call a black hole. But it was an interesting conjecture that would prove to have merit centuries after his death. A black hole is not really a star as we know it, but the remnants of one. A depression, a distortion, a crater, a hole in the very fabric of the universe itself. But for us to understand a hole in our universe, we must first understand the very essence, the very fabric of the universe itself. And for most of human history, the true nature of our universe was obscured from us, even after the brilliant work of Isaac Newton. It wasn't until the dawn of the 20th century that a new revolution in physics would come to pass. It was another exciting time for science. Technology, like electric, incandescent lights, were becoming more common. The Wright brothers in the United States flew the first powered, heavier-than-aircraft, the modern airplane. The Model T automobile came out a few years later, though horse-drawn carriages were far more popular. People in the Western world could cross vast distances on land far more efficiently, though, by boarding trains. For all of human history, we had a disjointed sense of time. What did it matter to one village if another neighboring village, two days' ride away on horseback, kept precisely the same time? Trains changed all that. Suddenly, time mattered. Trains needed to cross from city to city and make it to the station on time. To manage time more precisely, new time zones were designated for different regions. It was in this exciting new world that a young man named Albert came of age. As a young child born in Germany, Albert had been strangely quiet. He rarely spoke in complete sentences and sometimes whispered words to himself before speaking them aloud. His father gave him a compass as a gift, and the young boy's mind was transfixed. The needle, guided by some invisible force, always seemed to point in the same direction. Albert was a rebellious youth, and one teacher described his attitude in these words, saying it destroyed classroom discipline. He didn't think in terms of words or even numbers, but in vivid visuals that he saw within his mind's eye. He enjoyed daydreaming, and later in his life, he would famously say, quote, Imagination is far more important than knowledge, for knowledge is limited, whereas imagination embraces the entire world. End quote. Since he was a teenager, 
Albert was obsessed with the thought of what he would see if he could catch up to a wave of light, to travel at such incomprehensibly fast speeds. How would one's perspective of the world change around them? The intensity of the idea sometimes evoked such great existential angst that it caused his palms to sweat. He had read about light in his favorite book in childhood titled From the Field of Natural Science, explaining how the most brilliant minds of the time thought natural phenomenon behaved. Pursuing higher education at university, Albert Einstein frequently cut class, and his professors had only resentment for him. One professor referred to Einstein as a lazy dog. In particular, Einstein frequently skipped his geometry classes. His close friend, Marcel Grossman, was always kind enough to lend him his notes, which helped Einstein to pass his classes. After graduation, Einstein's mediocre grades made it difficult for him to find a job for well over a year. He applied for a position selling insurance, but he didn't get the job. Einstein's own father wrote to a professor of chemistry in Leipzig, Germany, in a humble and seemingly desperate plea to find gainful employment for his son, he described his offspring as a young man with a passion for science. The professor in Leipzig did not write back. Finally, a good friend of Albert Einstein managed to get him a job at the Swiss Patent Office as a third-class examiner. Some of the patents that he looked at in his day-to-day work were mildly interesting. Most of them were for new, more efficient clocks. In his spare time at work, Einstein would read physics journals, and theoretical physics specifically was a very new, emerging, cutting-edge field that intrigued him. Yet at his job, and on his daily commute, he couldn't help but daydream continuously. One spring day in Bern, Switzerland, Einstein found himself on a moving tram car. He often left work early. Staring out the back of the tram car, he caught sight of a local clock tower. He tried to imagine what he would see if the tram car were to accelerate to the speed of light. He imagined seeing the clock's hands standing still behind him as he accelerated forward at the speed of light. All the while, knowing that back at the clock tower, the clock's hands were ticking just as they normally did. As he later put it, a storm broke in his mind. Isaac Newton believed that time was fixed and that all clocks everywhere ticked at a constant speed from the present into the future. But what if moving faster through space meant moving more slowly through time? He began work on a paper which would be titled On the Electrodynamics of Moving Bodies. In another daydream, which he would incorporate into the paper, Einstein imagined himself standing on a platform outside a train station, when suddenly there were two bolts of lightning that struck. Standing on the platform, he imagined he would be able to see each bolt of lightning striking simultaneously on either side of him, both equidistant from him. The flash from both bolts of electricity would travel through space at the speed of light before reaching his eyes. Then, he imagined a woman on a train approaching the station. But not just any train. What if this train were traveling at the speed of light? Looking out the window, as this train rocketed past the platform, one of the bolts of lightning, the one closest to the train, would strike first. Shortly thereafter, the second one would fall. But if this scenario were accurate, Why was this the case? The speed of light had to be a universal constant. So why would this woman see one bolt of lightning hit before the other? How could one observer see the two bolts of lightning strike simultaneously on the platform, while the other on the train saw one strike before another? Was one of the observers mistaken? It could work 
if time for the woman on the train was passing more slowly. The phenomenon would come to be known as time dilation. With time dilation, it was possible for two events to occur simultaneously from one perspective, but at different times from another perspective. It wasn't an illusion. Both observations from both observers were equally correct, simply different from one another. Ultimately, the fundamental truth of the universe was that actual simultaneity didn't exist. Everything depended on one's vantage point. There was no absolute universal time throughout the universe. The passage of time itself changed based on one's frame of reference and their place in space. Moving through space changed the passage of time. Time was relative, and appropriately enough, this notion would later come to be known as special relativity. Space and time were indeed intertwined. Moving faster through space meant moving slower through time. In more extreme thought experiments of the time, a young twin climbing into a spacecraft and traveling close to the speed of light would return to Earth to find that his twin brother had grown old, while the twin on the spacecraft hardly aged at all. At high speeds, time slows down. Even the biological clock of the twin's own body and the aging process slowed down on his journey. Decades after Einstein's paper, experiments with precise atomic clocks found that a clock traveling on an aircraft at high speeds around the world ticked fractions of a second more slowly when compared with one that remained on Earth, confirming Einstein's special relativity. At the time Einstein was writing his paper, his wife was also a physicist, and considering that Einstein wasn't as good at math as many of his colleagues, he enlisted his wife's help in checking his equations. On the Electrodynamics of Moving Bodies was published in 1905 and met with very little reaction in the scientific community. Max Planck, one of the greatest theoretical physicists in all of Europe at the time, read it and took note of the name on the paper. Albert Einstein? It was a name that he had never heard of before. Still only in his mid-twenties, Einstein continued working at the Swiss patent office, and his daydreaming resumed. One afternoon, his eyes wandered to his office window, where he saw a small group of men working construction on a nearby building's roof, a few stories tall, and a long way to fall if one of them slipped, thanks to this invisible force called gravity. But Isaac Newton could never explain just how or why gravity exerts its pull. Galileo and Newton alike conceived of falling objects, how they fell, and at what rate they fell. Galileo even did experiments where he dropped objects off the Leaning Tower of Pisa in Italy. Einstein began to wonder what it would be like to be that falling object. What if one of the men on the rooftop slipped and fell to his death? Of course, gravity would pull him to the ground, but what sort of sensations would the unfortunate man experience? While in freefall, the man would feel weightless. Yet why should he feel weightless if he were being pulled towards the earth by an invisible force? Einstein imagined what it would be like to be in an elevator, inside a skyscraper, if the cable suddenly snapped and the elevator plunged down the shaft. Inside, a person might feel lighter than air, as though their body was floating up, weightless once again. And what if the precise opposite happened? What if, somehow, we could accelerate the elevator upwards at tremendous speeds? Then, the opposite effect would ensue. The pull of gravity would feel as though it increased many times. One's body would feel even heavier than normal. Roller coasters that accelerated their passengers up steep hills seemed to create this effect. Today, Astronauts and fighter pilots experience this heavier-than-normal sensation, and we call it G-forces. Gravity and acceleration certainly felt like the same phenomena, 
and perhaps they were. Clearly, gravity was different at different points in space, and the feeling of gravity certainly changed at different accelerations. Could it be that space itself was not the same everywhere in the universe? That it was different at different places and at different rates of acceleration? Einstein referred to these daydreams as the happiest thoughts of his life, and a clearer picture of gravity began to emerge in his brain. Yet he needed help to understand it mathematically, and there was one man who could help him, the young man who used to lend him geometry notes every time Einstein skipped class, Marcel Grossman. On the verge of unlocking humanity's understanding of the geometry of space and time itself, Einstein contacted Grossman and said, quote, You must help me or else I'll go crazy. Grossman agreed. He was an expert in differential geometry and explained to Einstein that non-Euclidean geometry might be particularly useful in this case. Einstein saw space and time as intertwined realms, three dimensions of space and one dimension of time, all part of one coherent universe. The very fabric of the universe itself, Einstein referred to as space-time. Astronomers observed events in the cosmos, like eclipses of Jupiter's moons, as light traveled across the vast tapestry of space-time. This fabric of the cosmos was normally flat when empty, but it was stretched and distorted by massive objects like stars and planets. The star that all our planets orbit around we call the sun, and the sun is so massive that over a million planet Earths could fit inside of it. So it served to reason that the sun might be causing the biggest distortion in space-time. Imagine a bowling ball sitting in the center of a large trampoline. The stretchy fabric of the trampoline sinks down and distorts under the weight of the bowling ball. Without the weight of the bowling ball, the trampoline's fabric would be flat. With the weight of the ball, in the center of the trampoline, other objects would seem to roll down towards the ball. To some observers, it would appear as though the bowling ball itself exerted some unseen force that pulled smaller objects towards it. But in reality, the smaller objects would simply roll towards the bowling ball as a consequence of the stretched fabric of the trampoline. Physicist John Wheeler would later describe it in these words, quote, Space-time tells matter how to move. Matter tells space-time how to curve. In our After Talk program this week, we speak with postdoctoral fellow at Yale, Michael Tremel, who has published multiple papers on black holes. He explains space-time in the following terms. A way of thinking of relativity is if everything was truly flat, then everything would be moving either staying still or moving with a constant direction, right? So the fact that we're in an orbit right now around the sun proves to you that actually our local space-time, very local, as in like, if we, if we were able to look at the geometry of space-time right at Earth, it, it's certainly not flat. It's being distorted by, well, the Earth itself, but also the gravitational field of the, of the sun, of all the planets. Uh, so on small scales, the space-time is actually quite, quite more rough, uh, right? Because of all the gravitational interactions that are taking place. But if you average over all of that and look at, at large distances, then indeed, cosmologically speaking, you know, talking about the shape of the universe, space-time is flat. Einstein was convinced that an object as massive as the sun would severely distort the fabric of space-time. Light traveled at a constant speed across that fabric, but very close to the sun, around the warped fabric of space-time, Light would be seen bending as it traversed this contorted medium. Such bending might not be observable during broad daylight. The sun was far too bright for that. But perhaps it might be observable during a solar eclipse, when the Earth's moon covered up the sun entirely, allowing the sky and stars around it to be seen more clearly. In 1911, Einstein's work had caught enough attention for him to receive a job offer at the University of Zurich. 
Einstein accepted and became the youngest professor on their staff. Students found him friendly, witty, and with a keen sense of humor, but nevertheless strange-looking in his appearance. He never did seem to comb his wild, frizzy hair. Einstein used his new position to call upon astronomers everywhere to observe the next solar eclipse for evidence of his new theory. But most of them, sadly, didn't respond. They had their own theories to prove. It was then that Einstein met with a young German astronomer named Freundlich, and the two had a fascinating discussion about gravity. Freundlich believed that he might soon be famous, if only he could find convincing evidence for Einstein's theory. So Freundlich contacted an American astronomer named Campbell, who was an early pioneer in astronomical photography and eclipse photography. They agreed to collaborate. In the summer of 1914, there would be an eclipse coming up, and it would be visible in Eastern Europe, with its path of totality running directly through the Ukrainian peninsula of Crimea. So in the summer of 1914, two astronomers took large suitcases full of heavy equipment, which included telescopes and four astronomical cameras on a train to Crimea. Since neither man could predict what the weather would be like on the day of the eclipse, they would camp in different areas, far away from each other, to increase their chances of getting the best possible photos of the event. But something else had been going on in the world that same summer. Just a few weeks prior to the two astronomers' arrival in Crimea, Archduke Franz Ferdinand, the man who stood to inherit control of a monarchy known as the Austro-Hungarian Empire, was gunned down in the streets, assassinated in cold blood. That event was now causing political and military tensions to reach their boiling point, as a war to end all wars threatened to spread across the Western world. One newspaper showed a painting of the planet Earth from outer space, with the sun covered up by the moon, the world shrouded in darkness, the only light coming from the continent of Europe, which was now engulfed in flames. For centuries, eclipses were seen as dark omens, harbingers of bad fortune, and perhaps at least on this particular occasion, there was some truth to it. Freundlich was arrested that day by Russian military officers. His telescopes and special cameras looked as though they could easily be used to observe and photograph Russian troop movements from great distances. Freundlich's equipment was confiscated and he was imprisoned as a spy. Campbell was from the neutral United States and was permitted to carry on with his work but a sky full of clouds made it impossible for him to take any photographs of the eclipse. Einstein's theory of general relativity would have no evidence to support it. Meanwhile at home, Einstein's marriage began to fall apart. He told his wife that one day soon he would win the Nobel Prize. If she would agree to a divorce, he would give her the prize money. As soon as he won, of course. She agreed. The professional setback, along with his recent divorce, caused Einstein to revisit his general relativity equations. It was then that he discovered something disquieting. His earlier math had been wrong. Specifically, when it came to the bending of light. The basic idea held true. Light would bend during an eclipse but not precisely as he calculated. If the eclipse in Crimea had been visible, it would not have vindicated him. Instead, it would have discredited his entire theory, and all due to a flawed calculation or two. So he went back to rework his math, and to check everything to be certain he was correct this time. It was then that he found something wonderful. Newton's conception of gravity as an invisible force explained and accurately predicted the motions of the planets around the sun, or at least most of them. Mercury, 
the closest planet to the Sun and the smallest planet in our solar system followed an orbit that Newton could never explain. The orbit was shifting very gradually over time, and Einstein now knew why. Space-time was indeed curving around the Sun, just as he predicted, throwing off the orbit of Mercury. Einstein's equations could now explain what Newton's couldn't. He knew he was on the right track, and Einstein published his Theory of General Relativity in 1916. But the final proof would come in 1919 from British astronomer Arthur Eddington on an island off the coast of West Africa in a dense jungle full of tropical plants and insects. Eddington spent over a month constructing a telescope that could photograph the eclipse. The positions of stars near the sun could be measured during the eclipse, then compared to their normal positions in the night sky to see if there was any change at all. There were scattered clouds that day, but the sky might just be clear enough to see some stars. As the moon covered up the sun, day turned to night in the humid African jungle. Eddington sat in darkness, the path of totality, and the longest period of totality of any eclipse in the 20th century, some six minutes. In the fall of 1919, Eddington made an announcement to the Royal Astronomical Society in London. He said the following, quote, The eclipse was partially obscured by clouds, but a few photographs of value were obtained. The measurements of the plates have led to the conclusion that the deflection of 1 second 0.75 at the sun's limb, predicted by Einstein's general theory of relativity, is verified by the eclipse observations. One newspaper headline read, Newtonian Ideas Overthrown. General relativity was confounding to the world's scientists. The Nobel Committee did not give Einstein a prize for general relativity in 1919, 1920, or 1921. But in 1922, Einstein did win the Nobel Prize, not for general relativity, but for a paper he had written some time ago on the photoelectric effect. And he gave the prize money to his ex-wife, just as he promised he would years earlier. Einstein became an international celebrity overnight, and many now saw him as the most brilliant man on earth. He would later meet the famous actor and filmmaker Charlie Chaplin, saying to him, quote, What I admire most about your art is that you don't say a word, yet the world understands you. Charlie Chaplin turned to Einstein and said, True, but your glory is even greater. The world admires you, even though they don't understand a word of what you say. Today, our understanding of general relativity is a crucial component of the technological world that we live in. Thousands of miles above the surface of the Earth, the curvature of space-time is slightly different in this realm, and our global positioning satellites are experiencing time dilation. If we didn't understand time dilation, general relativity, and the curvature of space-time, all GPS would be off by about six miles in any direction. Yet for as strange and revolutionary as general relativity was, it raised almost as many questions as it answered. When Einstein published his theory, a theoretical physicist serving in the German army in World War I took note. The man's name was Schwarzschild, and he was convinced that general relativity suggested a mind-boggling possibility. The sun's relationship to space-time was something akin to a bowling ball sinking into the fabric of a trampoline. The sun was massive, but also very, very big. How would an equally massive object fare if all its mass were concentrated into an incredibly small, dense point? The fabric of space-time would be stretched even further, perhaps to its breaking point. 
and this might create a literal hole in space-time. Schwarzschild knew that, mathematically speaking, future spacecraft would have to break free from the gravity of the Earth to travel to other planets. This was known as escape velocity. Earth's escape velocity was 11.2 kilometers per second. A larger planet would have a much higher escape velocity. The mass and radius of an object determine its escape velocity. If the radius of a very massive object were small enough, the escape velocity would increase. A very massive, very small, very dense object could, theoretically, have an escape velocity of 300,000 kilometers per second, or 186,000 miles per second, equal to that of the speed of light. And then, nothing, not even light, could escape from it. Schwarzschild called this entity a singularity. If such a singularity existed, it would raise some very strange questions about just how general relativity and the fabric of space-time really functioned under such extreme conditions. Einstein himself was skeptical that such a singularity, as small and dense as the one that Schwarzschild described, could ever exist. Einstein said that the idea was not convincing, that such a thing probably couldn't exist in our universe, so he dismissed it. In the 30s, one Indian physicist named Chandrasekhar speculated that the collapse of a massive star at the end of its lifespan might be enough to stretch the fabric of space-time, enough to collapse it upon itself. And that would produce Schwarzschild's singularity. Science writer Marsha Bartusiak found that in the early 1960s, physicist Robert H. Dick compared such a singularity to a prison in 1700s India. It was a stone dungeon devoid of light. According to one account, there was an incident where so many prisoners were stuffed into the dungeon that most of them died from suffocation or heat exhaustion. Out of 164 prisoners inside, only 21 made it out alive. The prison was known as the Black Hole of Calcutta. So this new term for this theoretical singularity was made commonplace by American theoretical physicist John Wheeler. From that point onwards, such a singularity would be known as a black hole. But no one was sure if black holes actually existed. Was it possible that somewhere in the universe a massive star might collapse on itself? And what would such an event look like? We call the explosive glowing deaths of certain kinds of stars supernovae. Human beings have been gazing at the stars and keeping records for thousands of years. In that time, multiple supernovae have been observed. Perhaps the oldest record came from Chinese astronomers in the year 185 CE. It was called a guest star, a bright, shining new star that suddenly appeared in an area where it had never been observed previously. They were witnessing a sort of cosmic explosion taking place very, very far away. But modern astronomers have never observed a supernova in real time. In 1967, astronomers Jocelyn Bell Burnell and Anthony Hewish picked up something very strange on their radio telescopes. Regular pulses, separated by 1.3 second intervals, some even speculated that the signals might be from extraterrestrials trying to communicate. So they named the radio signal LGM-1. The acronym LGM stood for Little Green Men. In reality, what they found were the leftover remnants of a star that existed after a supernova, a neutron star, 
essentially the extremely dense, collapsed core of a star. Typically, neutron stars are very small, some 10 to 20 miles, or 15 to 30 kilometers in diameter. Some neutron stars rotate, throwing off powerful pulses of electromagnetic radiation at repeating intervals, like a cosmic heartbeat. We call these neutron stars pulsars. For radio astronomers listening to radio waves in space, this is the sound of a pulsar. But the biggest revelation for astronomers and physicists was yet to come. The discovery would be found in the night sky near the constellation Cygnus, the swan. According to ancient legend, Cygnus's brother was unable to control the reins of Zeus's fiery sun chariot, and he came spiraling down violently out of the heavens, crashing to earth. Cygnus gathered up his brother's bones so he could give him a decent burial. This gesture was so emotionally moving to the gods that they turned Cygnus into a swan and sent him to fly among the stars. In the 1960s, with the advent of the space age, humans invented our own fiery chariots. American suborbital rockets with Geiger counters on board skimmed the edge of space and detected X-ray emissions in the constellation Cygnus. The X-rays had never been observed in the constellation before because the Earth's atmosphere had been shielding them from us. In 1970, a spacecraft called the Uhuru satellite was launched into Earth orbit and showed that the X-rays in the constellation Cygnus seemed to be fluctuating many times per second. The source of the X-rays was a point that appeared to be locked in an orbit with a blue star known as HD 226868, suggesting that the source of the X-rays was an incredibly massive object, more than 10 times the mass of our sun. But the object gave off no light. Centuries earlier, amateur scientist John Mitchell spoke of theoretical dark stars, which he said would give off no light for astronomers to see, but whose presence would be revealed if they were part of a binary star system. In 1971, the official announcement was made. The source of the X-rays, known as Cygnus X-1, might possibly be a black hole. Today, we know that it is. The first black hole ever discovered. 6,000 light years away from the Earth, incredibly hot gas is slowly being siphoned away from the nearby star, towards the black hole forming a flat, wide ring of super-hot gas known as an accretion disk. Well over a billion degrees Fahrenheit in temperature, this accretion disk is the source of the X-rays. As the superheated gas spirals towards the black hole, circling it hundreds of times a second, this creates a fluctuation in the X-rays. If Cygnus X-1 were a star, the center of it would be emitting an intense glow of X-rays. Instead, the glow of the X-rays disappears at the center of the accretion disk. There is only darkness. The radius of the black hole is just over 27 miles, or 44 kilometers. Decades before, Schwarzschild explained that his singularity would have an event horizon gravitational boundary that trapped anything and everything that went beyond it, even light itself. The event horizon is the point of no return. Any events therein would be shrouded in darkness, unable to be seen by those outside of it. Today, we call the formula for calculating the event horizon the Schwarzschild radius. General relativity shows us that time ticks more slowly, close to an immense gravitational influence. Past the event horizon of a black hole, 
time might very well stop entirely, ceasing to exist. Physicist John Wheeler said this about black holes, quote, They teach us that space can be crumpled like a piece of paper into an infinitesimal dot, that time can be extinguished like a blown-out flame, and that the laws of physics that we regard as sacred, as immutable, are anything but. General relativity offers us a framework for understanding space-time on a grand scale. Massive objects like stars, planets, even galaxies. But physicists use quantum mechanics to understand the smallest structures in our universe, such as the protons, neutrons, and electrons that make up atoms. General relativity works on a gigantic scale. Quantum mechanics works on a microscopic subatomic level. Separately, these laws work fine, but unifying them has proven to be the most challenging problem in the history of modern physics. If we try to use these laws in tandem with each other, we find them riddled with contradictions and confusion. But why should we have to use both sets of laws separately, from massive planets to tiny atoms? They are all part of the same universe. So why should two separate sets of laws govern them? This presents something of a problem when examining an entity such as a black hole that is incredibly massive, but also incredibly small. Just as black holes might offer insights into general relativity, so too they might offer insights into quantum mechanics. In the mid-1970s, theoretical physicist Stephen Hawking published a fascinating piece on black holes where he suggested that they might be emitting faint radiation, very slowly evaporating off into outer space. In considering subatomic particles near the event horizon, one particle might fall in while another particle might be permitted to escape. This is known today as Hawking radiation. We asked the guest on our after-talk, Michael Tremel, to explain this strange phenomenon, and this is what he had to say. Hawking radiation is, is quite complicated in detail, but the, the, the gist of it is, is that um, in quantum mechanics, you have, on very small scales, if you were to look at the universe on, on very, very tiny scales, you'll have what's known as virtual particles. You'll have, uh, just through random quantum fluctuations, you'll have uh, particles pop in and out of existence. Um, you'll have like a proton, like for example, a, a, an electron and an anti-electron, a, a, a positron. Right? So you'll, you'll have both of those come into existence and pop out of existence. So they, they, they appear and then they annihilate each other. And sort of that, that happens all the time uh, on various tiny scales in the universe. And such that we don't really see the effects on large scales. It all sort of averages out um, on, on larger scales. But if you're near a black hole, what can sometimes happen is you have this, these, these particles come into existence and it ends up that one of them falls into the black hole and the other one doesn't. And if you go through the math and the quantum mechanics of, of all of this stuff and the general relativity, uh, the, the effect of this, the fact that you have these particles that sort of only kind of exist, one of them falls into the black hole, the other one doesn't, in order to balance things out, uh, you get this, this, weird, this, this radiation effect, this, this energy at the event horizon gets, gets radiated due to the, these, these particles coming into existence uh, and uh, part of, you know, their, their partners getting eaten by the black hole. Um, and to, to, keep, to keep physics uh, right, to keep everything uh, balanced, right, because you're sort of messing up this, this, these really tiny processes that are supposed to, to average out to nothing, but you're sort of messing up that balance the, the result is that this, this radiation is sapping away the mass. These particles are able to actually take away the mass of the black hole uh, as, they, as they, they escape. Because black the, holes are very far away, and because this Hawking radiation would be very, very faint, we have yet to observe it. It remains purely theoretical. And the very idea of 
Hawking radiation, poses a challenging question. A black hole emitting radiation would slowly lose mass, and over an extremely long period of time, it could evaporate completely into outer space. But what about the matter that had fallen into a black hole? What if the black hole had consumed entire stars? For quite some time in his career, Hawking maintained that matter might be lost forever inside a black hole. Yet one of the most fundamental principles of physics is that matter can neither be created nor destroyed. It can only change form. Is it possible that black holes violate the most fundamental principles of physics? Physicist John Preskill expressed strong doubts that they did. And physicist Dick Susskind expressed similar doubts and wrote a book titled The Black Hole War about this profound disagreement between the scientists. In 2004, Hawking seemed to reverse himself, publishing a paper conceding that just before the event horizon, it might be possible to retain information. We know that when matter falls into a black hole, its surface area grows, but its volume does not. It almost appears as if the mass doesn't fall into the black hole so much as it gets stuck on its surface, much like a hologram. Technically, a hologram is merely a two-dimensional representation of a three-dimensional object. This hologram idea was proposed by physicist Dick Susskind in the 1990s, and it would imply that perhaps the universe itself and all the laws of physics could be conceived of as a hologram in just two dimensions, rather than the three dimensions of time and the fourth dimension of space. It would mean that black holes do not violate the most fundamental laws of physics, but it would mean that we would have to redefine our understanding of reality itself. It's a confounding notion, but it might hold the key to reconciling general relativity and quantum mechanics. It might answer the question of whether matter can actually be destroyed for good or whether it remains somewhere. But the truth is, there are still many questions black holes raise that, as of yet, are unanswered. We have not yet found out how to reconcile general relativity and quantum mechanics, nor have we solved the mystery of precisely what happens inside black holes. What we do know is that black holes are commonplace in our universe, and our own galaxy likely contains billions of them. Cygnus X1 is known as a stellar mass black hole, some 10 times the mass of the Sun. But 26,000 light years away from the planet Earth, at the center of our Milky Way galaxy, there is a black hole that is far larger, in a class of its own. A supermassive black hole that is some four million times the mass of our sun. And yet, the black hole itself isn't much larger than our sun. Astronomers now believe that supermassive black holes might very well lie at the center of every galaxy in our universe. In our after talk, our guest Michael Tremel, who has published multiple papers on these supermassive black holes, will be shedding some light on them for us. If we can truly unlock the mysteries of black holes, we will finally, at long last, have a comprehensive understanding of the fabric of our universe itself, and a means to unify general relativity with quantum mechanics. Perhaps some physicist in their early 20s is, at this very moment, sitting in the midst of a wonderful daydream, on the verge of just such an epiphany. And if black holes remain shrouded in confounding, paradoxical mystery, they will show us that even the most brilliant theory of physics since Sir Isaac Newton cannot explain everything about the universe that we live in. Indeed, Einstein himself didn't believe black holes could even exist. 
He was right about one thing, though. Imagination is more important than knowledge. <laughs>